With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Wild West Podcast, where today I'm very excited to welcome my guest, newly minted Mount Everest climber, Roxanne Vogel. Roxanne works in Berkeley at Goo Energy Labs, which makes those pouches of energy gel that you see marathon runners gulping down during races. She's the nutrition and performance research manager there, and she recently got back from Tibet, where she set a record for climbing to the summit of Mount Everest in just 14 days. That's super quick. Everest is, of course, the highest mountain in the world. It's taller than 29,000 feet, and so getting up and down it in two weeks is, is pretty much unheard of. It takes most climbers... Uh, who go on guided trips, 60 to 70 days to do it. And that's because they have to acclimatize to being at those high altitudes and they go in larger groups and they travel more popular, a more popular route. But Roxanne didn't do any of that. Instead, she acclimatized at home in the Bay Area using a hypoxic tent. Basically, it's a big airtight chamber that simulates those low oxygen levels at higher altitudes. For three months leading up to her climb, Roxanne slept in this tent at home for eight hours a night. And then she also worked inside a tent at her office. She described it as like living inside a fishbowl. So that preparation meant that in May, when the weather forecast for Everest looked favorable, she flew straight to Tibet and was able to literally hit the ground running without having to take long breaks to acclimatize during her climb up the mountain. Roxanne is an ultramarathon runner. She's a physiologist and she's a fastidious dietitian. She calls herself a science nerd. So she's the perfect person to talk to to understand how a human being is capable of pulling off this incredible feat and what it took to do it. I have this personality where it's like, well, if I can accomplish this, let's see what else we can do. And so the obvious progression of that was, well, you can end up climbing Mount Everest at some point in part of the Seven Summits. It's the highest mountain in the world. Let's see if we can do it. While she was climbing, Roxanne outfitted herself with a bunch of wearable tech to monitor all of her vitals and her body's physiology and she's aiming to publish her findings later this year. It's going to tell us what effects this type of activity in this type of environment has on the human body, which we don't really understand. So she and I covered everything about how she prepared for this climb, from her training, which involved flying to South America to climb remote mountains on weekends while away from work, to crafting an energy food product she calls the Everest Bar, uh, to what good luck charm she brought with her up the mountain. She's a fascinating person to listen to, and I hope you guys enjoy this one. We'll hear from Roxanne in just a moment, but first, this brief message. All right, we're back. Now on to my conversation with Everest climber Roxanne Vogel. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Roxanne. It's good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You returned from summoning Everest about three weeks ago. Is that right? Uh, a little less than that, but yeah, just over two weeks ago. How's it been? It's been kind of crazy. Um, there have been, you know, a lot of reporters reaching out just because of the whole uh, South Side media interest. Um, right. So, you know, almost unrelated to what I did, really, because I climbed from the north and it was a totally different experience. So it's been interesting and it's a 
you know, I was only gone for two weeks. So right. it feels like it was so fast. It almost feels like it doesn't happen. Huh. <laughs> yeah, it made me wonder, you know, people talk about how climbing Everest or climbing any mountain really can be this transformative experience. But when you, you know, condense all of that into like a two week event, it just makes me wonder if you can get that same sort of whatever, you know, enlightenment, whatever it is from it. Yeah. And there's definitely part of me that was a little bit sad that I didn't get to spend time in Tibet and just explore the country a little bit more. Um, but, you know, this was something I really wanted to try. A lot of it was because I was just curious from a physiology standpoint. I'm a big old nerd and, um, you know, the science behind it fascinates me. And so I figured we're going to make this a science project and it's not as much a personal project. Um, so, you know, I want to see if we can do it in the two week span, but yeah, I feel like you do miss a little bit. You miss a little bit of the culture and the history and just, you know, Tibet was close to foreigners for 30 years. So you couldn't even go there and to be able to get in and fly in this tiny provincial airport that nobody usually gets to fly into. It was just like, oh man, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah. So you're not these last few weeks. Are you like buzzing? Have you had a little time to reflect? What's the, what's going through your head? It's been really strange being back. This was definitely the biggest project I've ever prepared for, trained for. And before I left, I spent three months just sleeping in an altitude tent and working in an altitude chamber. Um, so Hypoxico partnered with us to provide these. But, you know, aside from that, it was like a full year of buildup to this project. Um, and you get back from something like that and all of a sudden you're just, you're not on a schedule. You don't have certain uh, workouts you need to do or I don't have to sleep in a tent every night. Like it's weird not to have a tent on my bed. So it's been sort of weird. I've felt a little lost, to be honest. It's hard for me to just kind of be in this no man's land for right now. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, let's start at the beginning and back it up a little bit. Why Everest? So I... To be totally honest, I grew up in San Diego. I was a beach kid. I never went to the mountains. My family was not outdoorsy. And we went camping all of maybe once when I was growing up. Um, my mom used to say, oh, we'll go camp at the Marriott. Uh, so <laughs> just to give a little background, I didn't really get into sort of the outdoor culture or any of that until college. Um, I studied abroad in Peru for a summer and did the trek to Machu Picchu. And that was where I really had my first outdoor experience and fell in love with it. And so um, fast forward a few years and 2012, I ended up going to do the Everest base camp trek. And um, it was funny, I was really young. Um, I was going through a divorce at the time and I was just like, I'm going to go find myself in the mountains and I get to Nepal, do the base camp trek and I'm sitting there looking at the Himalayas and Mount Everest and I was just like, I need to be climbing these things, right? Like for some reason, just some cord was struck in me and I was like, I need to climb. And so I was supposed to go back. This was during the summer, and I was supposed to go back and start grad school in the fall. Mm -hmm. Had a fluoride scholarship to East Carolina University. Uh, but instead of doing that, I came back from Nepal and then moved to Colorado so that I could be in the mountains and train and start climbing. And I started training for, like, Kilimanjaro. And then from there, I 
got this idea of the seven summits. And of course, Everest was still in the back of my mind. And mm-hmm. and it just kind of went from there. So I was just like, well, I'll do the next mountain and see how it goes. And then eventually ended up climbing Denali in 2016. And <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say ended up climbing to Everest, trekking to Everest Base Camp, ended up climbing Denali. Like these are pretty major feats for anybody to do. Like any, th- these could be like lifetime achievements for people in and of themselves. <laughs> yeah. So I have this weird personality. It's just like how I started running. So I started with like a 5K, right? And then I was like, well, if I could do 5K, I could do 10K. And then if I can do 10K, I end up doing ultra marathons now. So I have this personality where it's like, well, if I can accomplish this, let's see what else we can do. And so the obvious progression of that was, well, you're going to end up climbing Mount Everest at some point at part of the seven summits. It's the highest mountain in the world. Let's see if we can do it. But beyond that, it's also become part of work and part of uh, the research I want to do for my PhD. So high altitude physiology just fascinates me. Right. Real quick, why the seven summits? You know, that's a great question. And I think it comes down to... It, I was already kind of on that path. I had started climbing Kilimanjaro and then, I mean, climbing is loosely used, but, uh, and then I climbed Aconcagua. And so I'd already started this sort of collection and I am also a person who likes to collect things. So <laughs> it's like, it made sense. I was like, well, they're, you know, two out of seven, I might as well just keep going. And uh, along the way, I've met some cool people. And of course, on these trips, you meet a lot of other seven summiters. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you just kind of get the bug, I guess. And my good friend now, we met climbing up in the North Cascades, Andrew. He lives up in Seattle. But so we've been on this mission together. So it's not just the seven summits, but it's also the seven highest volcanoes on, you know, the highest volcano on each continent and then maybe North and South Pole. And so we just keep adding things to the list. And so it's just this ever growing kind of creature. So nice. Which ones do you have left of the seven summits? So now I just have Antarctica, which we're going to head down to in December. So Mount Vinson. That's the last one. You've done the other six. Well, I've done the other step. So, okay, to be, you know, <laughs> fully encompassing, there's there's two lists. So uh, one list says that Mount Kosciuszko in Australia is the summit, the summit down there. And then the other list says Karsten's Pyramid in Indonesia is the summit. So we did both just to be safe. Wow. So it'll be eight total. But, yes, all of them. Okay. When did you start doing them? Like, when by the time you're done, what will the period of time have been? Um, I, my first was Kilimanjaro and that was 2013. So, um, assuming we finish early 2020, I think we'll probably summit in very early January. Um, you know, seven years. Okay. So that's a pretty quick turnaround. (laughs) Yeah. It's not the fastest, but it's as fast as I could feasibly get it done. Yeah. Yeah. So these hikes are in some sense preparing you for Everest. Is that right? Right. So everything was kind of leading up to it, Um, especially, you know, you look at something like Denali and a lot of people will say or, you know, argue that it's harder than climbing Everest because you're out there for so long. It's like a three week trip, but you're carrying just a ton of weight. Mm -hmm. So you have a sled and a pack and it's probably, you know, at least 100 pounds. For me, it was like pulling my body weight, basically. Um, And the weather can be really brutal up there, cold temps, that sort of thing. So, um And I think that was really the turning point where in my mind, it was like a flip was switched, a switch was flipped. (laughs) And I said, you know, if I could, if I can climb Denali and I felt really good and really strong, there's a chance I could actually climb Everest. And then it became real. And that was, you know, three years before I actually did end up summiting. So um, I think it was that whole three years I was really like, okay, we're going to make this happen. Yeah. How do you prepare 
for Everest. What did you do? Um, well, a lot of climbing mountains whenever I could. So I'd travel around and just try and get a bunch of high peaks. Um, going down to South America is usually pretty uh, cost-effective, and it's not so hard to get the time off because it's not as far. Uh, I would go down to like Mexico and climb uh, volcanoes there or down mm -hmm. to Ecuador, climb volcanoes there. And then I started dabbling with the hypoxia chamber and uh, that was a game changer because then I could do these trips in like a really condensed time, not take so much time off work and then be able to fit more trips in. So once I started doing that, it was like so much opened up to me because I could go down for a weekend and climb 18, 19, 20,000 foot peaks, and it was no big deal. Um, and be back at work by like Monday, you know. Um, so, started playing with the Hypoxico uh, whole system. So, we have actually a chamber installed at my work at Goo Energy Labs in Berkeley. So, I'll, uh, you know, get in there and it goes up to about 12,000 feet, just work in there for hours or do workouts in there, things like that. Um, can you real quick, can you describe this chamber to people, like what it looks like, what this, how this tent works? So the chamber at work is probably the size of, you know, like somebody's laundry room or like a large closet. And it's enclosed in our gym space in this small kind of corridor that we have when you first walk in, but it's like clear sort of plexiglass. So it's almost like being in a fishbowl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's just it, this little closet area, and I have a couple stand-up desks that we put in there, and we can fit a bike trainer in there. Sometimes we'll ride the bike. Um, I bring my box in there and weight vests, and I'll do step-ups and things like that. But, yeah, it's just uh, this little space where you can simulate high altitude. So there's that, and then the tent at home goes over your bed and, mm -hmm. um, again, simulates altitude, but... Uh, you know, some people don't really like it. They feel a little claustrophobic. I actually miss it. I called Brian, <laughs> uh, my friend who's the CEO at Hypoxico the other day, and I was like, Brian, I know I'm done training for Everest, but can I please have the tent back? Like, I really miss it. It's, uh, you know, you get used to being kind of enclosed in this small space, but hmm. um, it has a generator and it can be a little noisy for some folks. And, you know, if you're married or have a significant other, I suppose that would make it much different, which I don't. So, you know, um, but yeah, so that's kind of the tent and altitude chamber system. The tent, I try to sleep, you know, eight hours a night. And then at work, I would try and get an additional four hours just so I could say a majority of my day was spent at altitude. So yeah. It's like living in a bubble. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. What else were you doing to prepare mentally or physically or otherwise? So a lot of it was, um, the actual physical training, which again, I worked with coaches from Uphill Athlete, um, Seth and Scott Johnston. And so they had me since early December and we trained all the way up until May when I left, but just a ton of volume, a lot of aerobic endurance. I already had like a really solid aerobic base because mm -hmm. I spent the entire summer in 2018 just running ultra marathons, trail races, just like every three weeks I was running some kind of race, you know. Um, so by the time they got to me, they were like, well, you know, you've got a great aerobic base, really don't need you doing more than like what you're kind of doing as far as aerobic endurance. So they introduced me to muscular endurance workouts, which basically trained my legs to be able to be really strong, but also really endurant with weight added to it. So mm -hmm. a lot of uh, plyometric weight vest type workouts, um, 
we would do a lot of repeats on really steep slopes with a heavy pack. So carrying up to like 65 pounds and I'd be going, <laughs> I spent some time in Mammoth, so I'd be booting up these coulars in the snow with just this huge pack, which is more than half my body weight. Uh, so the training was huge. I spent, you know, upwards of 20 hours a week. So I think my highest volume training week was maybe like 24, 25 hours just like a part-time job, you know? Yeah. And then nutrition, obviously. So part yeah, what of, were you eating? Part of my job is, you know, telling athletes what to eat. So obviously for me, I put myself on a strict diet. I was always kind of lower carb, higher fats, and high protein before. So I maintained that, you know? I was eating a ton of vegetables. Every day for lunch, I'd have a giant salad that was like a pound, pound and a half of produce. And... uh I did cut out alcohol entirely for like the, you know, since January, I would say. So that was a big change. And um, yeah, so just really focusing on ways to support my training load through like recovery nutrition. So mm -hmm. getting enough protein, making sure I ate really nutrient dense, you know, whatever it was I was putting in my mouth, like it had some value or some benefit, right? So uh, eating cruciferous vegetables that help with your detoxification enzymes, um, eating lots of polyphenol rich things like blueberries or cacao. So yes, I did have dark chocolate every night. <laughs> but um, so since December, there every single day, I recorded everything that I ate. So I had like a food log, but you can go back and see every single day, calories, macros, what it was I ate. Whoa. Like everything is documented, right? Scientist. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Nerdy. <laughs> and then you linked up with Lydia Bradley, right? Who's She's a mountain guide, but she's also the first woman to have summited Everest without supplemental oxygen, right? Yeah. Lydia Brady is... Oh, Brady. Sorry. Uh, yeah. No, she's a hero in my mind and, uh, you know, just such an amazing human. Effectively, she was in retirement from Everest is what I was told. And I was looking for a female guide. That was important to me. And she was actually really excited to hear that I wanted to climb with her from the north because she had never climbed the north. And so um, I was so excited to talk to her and she was excited to talk to me so it just ended up being like the perfect situation and we both got to experience the north side for the first time together so which is in tibet the south side is in nepal right. south side is the one that everybody takes basically the north side is fewer people attempt it is that right right again tibet was closed to 30 years for uh for 30 years to foreigners and um nepal just in the meantime had this whole everest kind of infrastructure crop up so it's um historically been more accessible it's a little easier to get permits in nepal and uh traditionally well it still is it's just the weather can be a little bit harsher on the north side so it's more exposed than the south so there are higher winds colder temperatures can make it a bit more difficult. And then finally, the most technical part of the climb on the north side is at the highest elevation. So on your summit day, you're basically going through these series of steps. So these rock cliffs that you have to scale. And there are some ladders strung up in places, but they're a little bit sketchy and especially coming down backwards when you can't see your feet. So why the north side? So, uh, <laughs> Originally, I was looking at the south, and I knew I wanted to do a rapid-style ascent. 
And there are operators offering that on the south. Um, they were offering trips anywhere in the range of maybe 35 to 45 days, which a traditional Everest expedition is about 60 to 70 days. And so that's rapid by you know those standards. And I looked into those, and then I also had previously been in touch with Adrian. He is like the pioneer of doing rapid ascents, and he perfected mm-hmm. this technique on the north side, and that's the only place he operates. And so, you know, that was definitely something I wanted to look into because I knew he was just the best at doing this. So I reached out to him, and uh, I remember we had this phone conversation, and I was like, oh, yeah, so you do a rapid ascent that's 35 days. That looks awesome. Um, tell me more. And he was like, yeah, we do the rapid ascent, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I'm also considering kind of looking for somebody to try a lightning ascent, which would be uh, 14 days door to door. And, you know, I think it can be done. No one's ever tried it. And uh, we'll just kind of see. Maybe someone will do it this year. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's crazy. Like, good luck finding that person. <laughs> and, uh, okay, I'll be in touch with you. So got off the phone. Uh, let it marinate for a few days and then you know the scientist in me just really was like I wonder if you can do that and that would be so cool to collect data on this and why couldn't I do that I mean I've been experimenting with these (laughs) techniques I could be that person and so I called him back and was like all right Adrian what do you think about me can I do it and he was just like yeah, absolutely. You've been practicing on these high volcanoes. Like, you've done this. You, you're you a big nerd. You'll record all the data. Like, absolutely. And so it just kind of went from there, and it, everything came together. And So what are the pros and cons of these lightning ascents? You're doing them way quicker, which in some ways makes it safer or could make it a safer climb. Mm-hmm. In other ways, maybe less safe. I'm, I'm just wondering what the how you kind of reconcile that. Yeah, I think the main benefit is, one, you are spending less time on the mountain, so you're exposed to fewer fewer germs, you're not out there as long with subpar hygiene or subpar nutrition, so you kind of stay stronger, you're not hanging out as long at these really high elevations, which the human body is not meant to survive above like 14,000 feet for a very long amount of time. And so once you're there, you're basically just getting weaker, mm-hmm. right? So you spend weeks on a mountain. In the case of Everest, people are there for six, seven, eight weeks. You're just getting weaker. You're losing muscle mass. You're losing total mass. Uh, you know, you're more susceptible to illness. And it's just, it's almost like you're asking to get sick. And most people do at some point. And so I think avoiding all of that is huge. I felt amazing, like the entire time I was there. I've never felt like I was weak. I didn't lose any mass. I didn't lose any muscle mass. I actually measured this before and after, obviously, because that's what I do. But um, yeah, I just, you know, I went in at my strongest point and I was able to maintain that the whole time I was there. So I think it's safer from that perspective. You're less likely to get sick. And then not to mention, like, the personal, you're away from your family for that amount of time or you're away from work for that amount of time. Like, who can afford to take two months off of work? In most cases, no one. So uh, for all those reasons, I think it's superior. And then as far as what are the drawbacks, I think, you know, you, you sacrifice a little bit of your personal freedom. I did in this case because I was 
sleeping in a tent for three months. So I'd be going to bed by eight o'clock so I could get my eight hours in the tent. And, uh, you know, it's very regimented and you have to be on it and you don't get to do a lot of traveling during this time because you need to be in your tent. So Mm -hmm. a little bit of sacrifice beforehand, but you're in the comfort of your own home. So, you know, it's a trade-off I'm definitely willing to make. So you summit on May 22nd, is that right? Right. Uh, Do you want to just walk me through summit day? What does that look like? Yeah. So it was interesting because what happens on Everest is there are ropes that get fixed to the summit, and that's what you follow. It's a fixed line, so you basically clip into it and you follow the route up to the summit. These get fixed by Sherpas. Um, So on the south side, it's like a collaborative effort usually between the Sherpas from various climbing expeditions and they fix the lines or on the north side, it's the um, China-Tibet Mountaineering Association. They hire Sherpas to fix the lines. This year on Everest, the weather was pretty bad and it really impeded the ability of the Sherpas to fix the lines. Mm -hmm. So on the south, they were able to fix the lines by May 14th. On the north, they still hadn't been fixed by the time we went for summit. So it was actually a really big gamble to try and go up on the 22nd because they were supposed to finish that day. They were expected to finish that day, but we nobody knew if they were going to. And they had gone up and come back down five times because bad weather would come up. And so um, I remember being on the radio with Adrian the night before summit attempt, and we're sitting at Camp 2, which normally people go up to Camp 3 to summit and then back to Camp 3. But we're sitting at Camp 2, and he was like, look, you guys have an opportunity here. If you want to try it, I can't guarantee that they'll finish fixing the lines in time for you. You might get there within 200 feet of the summit and have to turn around if they don't finish. And the other part is because they're still fixing the lines, you'd have to leave later than we would normally tell people to leave. So Mm -hmm. it's going to be a very unorthodox summit day for you. If you want to do it, you'd have to leave closer to like 1 or 2 a.m., which most people leave about 10 or 11 p.m. the night before summit push. Um, But if you want to give it a shot, you can. And if you don't make it, I can't guarantee you'll get another chance. And this weather window that we have is really short and you know, if this is it, then this is it. So make your decision. And Lydia and I, it took us maybe one minute to decide. We're like, yeah, (laughs) we're going for it. Like (laughs) we knew the 23rd was going to be crazy on our side Mm -hmm. because there was only, it looked like two days worth of good weather for the whole season. And so everybody was kind of like ready to move for the 23rd. And we were like, we don't want to get caught in that line. If there is one, um, we should just go for this. Mm -hmm. And so we did. And, um, so we get up and we leave at 1.45, again, really late for a summit push, but we wanted to give the rope fixers time to make it to the summit. And um, we go three hours later, we're at Camp 3, which is where most people start their attempt from. So we started at Camp 2 is about 25,000 feet and um, got up to Camp 3. By the time we got there, it was just starting to you know, hit twilight so we could see ahead of us and we saw headlamps on the horizon up on the ridge and we knew the rope fixers were up there so we're like sweet they are going to work all right we just got to follow them and so over the next seven hours um we basically just would follow along and then if they like stopped or looked like they were slowing down we would just kind of pause and hang out and we were trying to take our time so we could give them time Mm -hmm. 
And, uh, you know, even getting to this point, the third step, which is the last there are three steps right before you hit the final summit slope, we get to the bottom of the third step and we see them and they're like eating lunch or something. So we're like, <laughs> well, I guess we should stop and, you know, hang out, have a have a snack and a drink. So so we did. But, um, but yeah, they did make it to the top, like maybe 30, 45 minutes before we approached the final summit push and uh then they were coming down as we were just walking up to the very summit and they were actually really excited to see us. It was really cool. They like gave us high fives, gave us some hugs and, you know, they were like, enjoy it. And so they were gone. And then it was myself, Lydia and two climbing Sherpa, Mingma and Pasang, who were with us. And we got to the summit and there was nobody else there which was incredible. The sun was out. Um, you know, there was a slight breeze, but it wasn't terribly cold. I was actually sweating most of the day. And I looked down the south side, even expecting to see people, and there was nobody there. And, mm. you know, we by the time we got to the summit, it was like 11.45. Most of the times, if you're climbing Everest, they will give you a hard turnaround of like 10 or 11 a.m. because no they don't want you to be on the summit that late in the day. Weather can come up. Things can happen. Mm -hmm. People get tired. So, you know, it was because we were so much later that we didn't hit that. That was the same day that picture was taken that went viral. Yeah. You know, with the line. We didn't see anybody at all on the south. And nobody else climbed from the north that day because nobody else took the risk that the lines wouldn't be fixed. So it was amazing. Once we got to the top, it was just us. And then there was nobody else on the route the entire day. That's that, incredible. Yeah. It was incredible, and it was just surreal to be up there by ourselves on the summit of Mount Everest. What did you do up there for 20 minutes? Uh, you know. Take a lot of selfies? Not as much as I would have liked. You know, I wanted to <laughs> take off my pack, and I had this banner with, like, you know, people who had partnered with us, and I, I didn't even do that. Like, I was too tired to take off my pack. I didn't want to deal with it. Uh, I didn't eat or drink, which, you know, big fail on my part. And... Um, <laughs> We did take some pictures. Um, our Sherpas had brought prayer flags, so they put up some prayer flags, as is tradition. And, uh, yeah, just kind of took in the view for a little bit. But other than that, it was uh, just, yeah, I wish I would have done a little more up there. But I did manage to send a t uh, text message out to my family and the people following to let them know I had made it. Um, so I had brought this little GPS Garmin thing that you can send a message from anywhere in the world. So, and it's really cool because it shows you on the map where in the world that message comes from. Oh, cool. And like the elevation and everything. So people could see exactly where I was at that moment. But it took me a good five minutes just to like figure out how to push the button. I was so tired. Uh, but yeah, at that point I was like, well, you're only halfway now. So <laughs> you better get it together because we got a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. And then you come down pretty quick, right? It's... Relatively. So like half the amount of time it took us to get up there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it took us 10 hours to get up and then maybe five to get back to Camp 2, um, which we had thought maybe we would make it down to advanced base camp at uh, 21,000 feet that day, but there was no way that was happening. Mm -hmm. By the time I got to Camp 2 at 25,000 feet, I was spent. I had um, unfortunately kind of failed in my nutrition strategy that day, which is funny because that's my job but uh you know to be fair i had never dealt with an oxygen mask before and those mm. are such a hindrance to doing anything like you have to pull it away from your face and try and slip food or drinks underneath it there's like a little gap that you can try and squeeze things and i just 
I was so focused and I just wanted to move. I didn't feel like dealing with it. And so I didn't. And that day in 15 hours, I consumed about 200 calories and a half a liter of water. Ooh. So I was pretty spent, you know. So it wasn't necessarily high altitude anorexia. Right. It was just that the mask was and, you know, you were just kind of tired. Exactly. It was just dealing with, you know, I didn't feel like messing with it. I would have wish I would have had a better delivery system, like a straw or a tube or something. But yeah. Yeah. Are you eating food up there? Or are you mostly drinking it? What are, you, what are you eating when you're up there? So personally, I had uh, developed some products and the formulators and food scientists at Goo had helped me create these products. So I had a bar that I made called the Everest Bar. And then <laughs> I had a custom gel formulation and a custom drink mix. So I had all of those things on me. That's awesome. I just, you know, didn't end up utilizing them on Summit Day. What's the Everest Bar like? The Everest Bar is like 500 calories of pure delicious. It's <laughs> it's uh, macadamia nuts, cacao. It's got coconut butter as a base. So it's just like a really rich and dense um, energy source. And it's also made with honey and stuff too. But um I had put a bunch of just really nutrient-dense kind of ingredients in there to help supplement me while I was on the mountain in case I wasn't getting, you know, proper nutrition, which I kind of wasn't compared to being at home. But it's also just really calorie-dense. So for the weight, it would just pack a ton of calories, and I could nibble on it all day. And Mm -hmm. oh, my God, it's so good. (laughs) (laughs) So you get down, and but while you're climbing, you had brought all of this wearable tech with you and you are essentially studying your own physiology while you're doing this or, or at least monitoring it so that you can sort of study it later. Right. So I was very fortunate to get one of the very first, they're calling it Astro Skin because it's a technology they use at the space station to monitor the astronauts physiology remotely. It's a, basically a shirt with wearable sensors implanted in it and it will, um, monitor continuously without you having to deal with it for you know two days at a time which is really cool put it on forget it but it would do blood pressure heart rate heart rate variability uh, breathing rate skin temperature pulse oximetry basically everything ekg everything you need to know about yourself um, and it does it in real time which is pretty cool so you could even look on your cell phone with the app and just see where things are where things are at. Um, So I'd use it a lot for looking at my pulse oximetry and um, seeing how well it was acclimatizing. But yeah, so I have all of that data. It's like days and days worth of data Mm -hmm. that I need to analyze now, but it'll be the first of its kind for those altitudes and, you know, for an Everest summit day. So it's really cool stuff that I'm looking to publish here in the fall, probably. Yeah. What do you hope to learn or what do you hope that people can take away from that research? From an observational standpoint, it'll just be fascinating to see what happens because we really don't know. Like, what does your blood pressure do above 8,500 meters? Or, you know, how does your pulse uh, or your oxygen saturation change overnight at those altitudes? Because a lot of times these metrics you measure at different time points, it's like taking a snapshot. Whereas this wearable technology that's recording all the time is like getting a full video of capturing every single thing. And so just being able to see how things change over you know, that time course is gonna be really cool and at those altitudes, because we don't know. That's interesting. Yeah. Did you bring any lucky charms with you? Oh my God, yes. I call it my Shashki collection. Um, <laughs> so. 
over the course of these, you know, seven years that I've been doing trips like this, I've managed to come a- across uh, interesting people who give me little trinkets or things that are like for good luck or whatever it is. Like I've got this, uh, you know, set of prayer beads from someone or this little pig thing from someone else or uh, my friend who's a U-2 pilot, like the spy plane jet pilots, uh, gave me his little medallion. And so I just have this handful of just little collection things that I take with me and they all went to the summit. So yeah, I absolutely have little good luck charms. And I feel like if I don't take one of them, then something bad might happen. So now every time I get something that I like, <laughs> it just gets added to the file. It's going to get out of control soon. How much does it weigh? Do you know? Uh, you know, I should weigh it, but probably, <laughs> you know, 500 grams. I don't know. It's, it's getting pretty hefty. Um, one of the topics that comes up every year pretty much with Everest, and certainly this year because of uh, the sort of traffic jam, the gridlock on the south side, um, and the deaths as well, is the question of whether inexperienced climbers belong on Everest, what the feat of climbing Everest really means um, in kind of the contemporary era where you can pay guides to sort of do everything for you, essentially, um, except, you know, put one foot in front of the other for you. And I just wonder if you, coming back from Everest now, even though you were on the north side, you're away from the south side crowds, if you have any um, perspective on that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really unfortunate kind of what happened and all of the negative attention it's brought to the mountain. But it's also not really kind of the first time. Um, I feel like every season when something bad happens and it actually gets headlines, it's usually people, you know, speculating that maybe inexperience is to blame or, um, you know, people just willing to pay the money and not really put in the necessary work behind preparing for Everest um, are getting dragged up the mountain by Sherpas and putting Mm -hmm. Sherpas' lives in danger. And I think to a small extent that could be true, but I think at the end of the day, this year was just an abnormal season weather-wise, and that really had a lot to do with it. You know, normally on Everest, there might be seven to 10 days of good weather where people can summit. And this year, it was more like three to five. And so when you have this compressed window, everybody has to go for it at the same time. And Mm -hmm. it's nobody's fault. It's just, it is what it is. And um, it's really unfortunate, but I think the weather window had a lot to do with it. And there's just a lot of people on the mountain and that's what happens. So. Mm -hmm. So there's also something about the popularity of these mountains. I haven't climbed any of them, but I've heard similar stories from people who have gone to Kilimanjaro that it's just kind of a big crowded mess a little bit. And it's kind of this conveyor belt of hikers and people going up. And I guess I just wonder how that affects what ultimately for the people who pioneered these routes and for people who love climbing mountains is supposed to be this personal sort of spiritual experience in the outdoors. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. And it's something I've observed, definitely. Um, I mean, I remember when I climbed Kilimanjaro, there was this one woman being literally dragged up with oxygen on like one porter under each of her arms. And I was just like, whoa, that's crazy. You know, like, I wonder if she's even going to remember this. Um, 
and then you talk about the crowding and things like that. And I lived in Denver for four years. And so it's like any given weekend, you'd go out to one of the 14ers out there and same thing, right? Yeah. And it's hard to say that, you know, there should be a limit on the number of people that can climb or, or any of the things that has been brought up, you know, about Everest. But when so many people want to enjoy a mountain, like who's to say that we shouldn't let them? Um it is kind of a bummer when you get to a mountain or whatever outdoor space and it's crowded and, and, and that, but, you know, I think everybody has a choice. And if you want to find a more remote, remote location or remote mountain to climb, then you can absolutely do that. Uh, I've been to some pretty remote, remote locations down in South America lately that I'm like, wow, this is amazing. There's nobody out here. So, uh, yeah, I think it just depends on kind of the legwork you want to put into it, how much you're willing to do your own logistics and, and, you know, deal with trip planning. But if you want to get remote and you want to get away from the crowds, it's entirely possible still. There are lots of places on this planet that are untouched. So, And then part of your trip was – part of the, the point of your trip or something that you wanted to incorporate was raising awareness for women and Latinas in the outdoors, Yeah. Yep, absolutely. What was the, where did that come from? And what do you sort of, what message do you want to convey? Well, I know, you know, just from going on trips or going to uh, mountaineering courses or things like that, it was always very evident that the female ratio, the female to male ratio was very, very low. A lot of times I'd be the only woman. Um, Most of the time it'd be like myself and maybe one other female on any given trip or class or whatever it was and so it's just and even when I was looking for a female guide uh you know there were like three that I could have contacted one of them had just had a baby recently wasn't really guiding the mountain anymore I knew one and she ended up being injured and wasn't able to climb this season and so she was actually the one who introduced me to Lydia Brady who was the the final one um so it's just it's blatantly obvious even when I was trying to get a down suit for the trip you know or just different gear for this trip it's like they don't offer these mountaineering clothes in women's Mm. at all so you have to buy a man's suit or man's you know whatever and um, luckily I have really good friends at Mountain Hardware and they were able to help me kind of fit my suit so that I could wear it but it was a men's small and it was just ginormous on me um so yeah just all of those things make it very apparent that the female presence in in sort of the high altitude mountaineering world is very limited and I just love it so much and I think that you know other women should enjoy it too and so I think for me it was just getting other women to want to experiment and go try these high mountain climbs and things like that. And I am also Latina. um, And so I've worked with inner city youth before. When I was in Denver, Colorado, I worked for an organization called America Scores. So um, I have this space in my heart for trying to get, you know, inner city kids or Latinos or whatever it is more involved in these outdoor pursuits because I think there's just so much good that can come of it. And uh, I've gotten so much out of it personally, and I just want everyone to be able to experience that. Your next peak, last peak, Antarctica coming up. What's the plan for that? What, what's the uh, the outlook? You're about six months out yet, uh, right now, right? 
Right. Six months out. So this one's going to be a big one um, because, as I mentioned, my partner and I are not only trying to do seven summits, but also the volcanoes and then <laughs> North and South Pole. So we're like, well, to get to Antarctica is such a logistical yeah. kind of nightmare. And it's uh, we're like, we're just going to do it once. We're only going to the continent once, hopefully. So we're trying to f- squeeze in three different objectives in one trip. So we're looking to climb Mount Vincent. Uh, which is the highest mountain, and then Mount Sidley, which is the highest volcano, mm. and it's very rarely climbed. And then finally, we're going to head down and ski the last degree down to the South Pole. So it's like 90 miles of uh, skiing, basically towing a sled to the South Pole. So we want to do all three of those, and we're going to try and go in December. It'll obviously bleed into January because it's going to take us a while, but we're looking at about four or five weeks down there. In the uh, <laughs> in the Antarctic tundra, it's a long time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that'll be you know I'm already getting ready mentally for that, and uh, like I said, I'm still working with my coaches from uphill athletes, so that'll be our next project unless I head off to the Himalaya, which might happen, but we don't know yet. <laughs> so, what will be left for you to collect in the mountaineering world after you're done with the seven summits and the volcanoes and the poles? You know. I've gotten that question a couple times, but I'm like, there's always going to be a mountain to climb. And especially now with the rapid ascent technology, it's like you can go and do something in five days that might otherwise take 20. So, um, you know, I'm not going to say I would never consider other 8,000 meter peaks. So that could definitely be another collection, so to speak. But, uh, you know, we'll see where we'll see where it goes. Well, thanks very much for coming by. This is great, Roxanne. Yeah, no, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thanks very much again to Roxanne for coming in to chat. For more info on her journeys and research, she's on Instagram at Roxy Mountain Girl, Roxy M-T-N-G-I-R-L. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. If you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com. Wild West is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you like us, throw us a rating and a review. See you next time.